Early Risers is supported by Health Partners and Park Nicollet. From rashes, fevers, shots, and all other things that make you worry a lot, Health Partners has pediatric care for your kids. Visit healthpartners.com slash schedule. From Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio, this is Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. I'm Diane Halsey, your host with Think Small in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This is our final episode for our first season of Early Risers. Before we get to this episode, I want to let you know we are hosting a Zoom event on June 17th. I'll be there with other experts answering your questions about how we keep up the conversation with young children about race and racism. For more information, go to npr.org backslash early risers. When we are talking with young children about indigenous communities in the United States, conversations often focus on the past. My guest today is creating ways to include Native children in talking about their own communities and culture. She wants to show young children that Native communities are alive and well. Brooke LaFoe is a citizen of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa. She has been working for years in the early childhood space to teach young ones about Anishinaabe culture. And she's an emerging thought leader in the early childhood field. Welcome, Brooke. Thank you, Diane. Happy to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're most welcome. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So let's just get to it. Can you tell me about the first time you remember an adult, you know, maybe it was a parent or a relative talking to you about race? Yeah. So we have a tool called the medicine wheel. And it's symbolic of many, many things, but it's also one way that we, I, I have been taught about race anyways. And there's this saying in Lakota called and I'm Ojibwe, so that's not my language. It means we are all related, right? And the way we look at this medicine wheel, there's four colors, there's red, yellow, white, and black, and it's in a circle with a cross between it. And there's the four different colors. They use that tool as a way to talk about the different people of the world, Right. There's Asian relatives who are yellow. Um, there's us, we're the red people, technically. There's our European relatives who are white and our African relatives who are black. And I guess you would say Mexico fits within the red because we're all the same continent. Mm. So it's really a way that we talked about the people of the world, more so about than race. People come in different colors, right? But that we are all related, that we all come from the same um, Mother Earth and that there's a lot more similarities than there is differences. Oh, I love it. So that's how I was prescribed race kind of growing up. And it wasn't directly, you know, race, but more about the world and the fact that there's other global citizens. And what I like about that, Brooke, what I like about how you're describing that is everybody's equal. I think what you were given is almost like a gift to be able to learn from a very young age that everyone is equal in that way and then actually have something visual to show you what that looks like. Absolutely. That's beautiful. So growing up in Minnesota, did you have any early experiences of racism that you can remember uh, as an Indigenous child? Um, So a lot of the first ones, and they weren't quite um, experiences of racism, but I always was mistaken for being Mexican and Spanish speaking. Really? From our Spanish speaking relatives, right? Like I would be five years old in a grocery store and some guy would come speak Spanish to me and I would (laughs) 
like, you know, vaguely freak out, like, because I'm a kid, you know, I'm like, what's going on? And, um, you know, and I knew there was other languages. So, but I always was like, I'm not that, like, I don't speak that language. And um, so there was that, those, those feelings of being unseen for who I am and mistaken for something else. Yes. It was a lot of that when I didn't have like the language or tools to process that yet. Mm, yes. So I know part of your professional background, you've spent some time teaching in the early childhood classroom at the American Indian Montessori Child Care Center in St. Paul. What have you learned about how very young children talk about race and racism? Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's crazy. I think they're a little bit more blunt and open and honest about it. Um, you know, they can just say it how it is. And that's true for a lot of things, not just race. Um, <laughs> But I do remember, you know, kids would talk about, and in our classroom specifically at the Montessori American Indian Child Care Center, we are in the city. Um, even though we serve Native children, we are at this point very intersectional, right? Like we have half Native, half Mexican children, half Native, half Black children. So we have a lot of mixed children in our classroom. But the one, again, the one thing that really um, unifies them is that all of them are part Native in some way. So we try do try to give them those things to talk about, like what tribe are you from? Where does your family come from? They say things like that, but then when they talk about the other parts of their identities, right, they say, I'm black or I'm Mexican or I'm Spanish speaking. And when they and when we can help them figure out those aspects of where they're from, we had a we had a um, a child who was indigenous Navajo and indigenous African. Wow. Yeah, it's beautiful. Right. Um, and she knew she was from Ghana and from the Navajo Nation. So that is really beautiful. Not just talking about that particular child, but the way that you were able to bring that into the conversation with very young children. So you're actually having them talk about which tribe they're from, what is their background in a real conversation so they can get comfortable talking about it. Absolutely. So they probably were able to come back later after some of those conversations and ask more questions about it or, or even ask questions of each other. Absolutely. And even, um, you know, talking about it in the sense of like, where's mom and dad from? So they can go ask their mom and dad at home about those things. And they can have those conversations at home because again, like I said, a lot of their parents were of biracial, interracial couples. And that's, that's a beautiful thing too, right? Is that you can, you have two parents and you have two cultures that you can identify with now. So we try to give them those skills and, and see that they come from a, a community and a family that's larger than themselves. Beautiful. I love that. They come from a community and family that is larger than themselves. So did you ever have situations then in your classroom where perhaps someone said something that was racist or used a slur um, or a young child said something that you had to address? Hmm. I don't think we've dealt with too many slurs. I guess the only thing kind of more slurish that our kids have to feel on a daily basis is like the the mascots, right? Like the Redskins, right? Like, um, you know, even though we refer to ourselves as having red skin in our medicine wheel, we don't actually call ourselves the Redskins. That's the derogatory thing that was kind of given to us. So they they have to see those things, you know, in the NFL and in our popular dominant culture all the time. Yes. Um, when a, a young indigenous child sees something like the Redskins, what does that do to them? Or what what do they what are the questions they might ask about that? Well, it, it gives them a prescribed ideology of what natives are seen as. Mm. Our true cultural selves is pretty invisible in dominant culture. Right. We are prescribed 
either being in a historic context, right? Like the Cowboys versus Indians. That's usually how we're prescribed are in this context of like cartoons and, you know, the, the mascots. And there's actually far more mascots than just the dominant ones that we see in the NFL. Um, like the chiefs, there's, there's like just regular high schools around that have like, um, kind of concerning mascots, um, savages, right. Or, um, Indians still is one. Mm -hmm. I think children have to see that. And we have to say like, that's just, that's a popular culture thing. That's not who we are. So we kind of have to do some explaining. They learn to understand that as they get older. And a lot of people still fight against those mascots, right? Because it's not good for our kids to see those things. So we just, we just toss those things out for the most part. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I want to say as part of the dominant culture, I don't think people realize how often they are seeing those images. Yeah in our cartoons, in our literature, uh, even in the way um, some people might do dress up for Halloween, and that young children are seeing those images and they're taking that in. And so you have to speak to, this is not us, and this is not you, and you know who you are, and, and how you do that by actually having them say, yeah, this is what tribe I come from. And so that's really, really beautiful. So what have you learned from watching and listening to your elders talk to young children about race? I love the image of the medicine wheel. What else have you learned from your elders about this? Yeah, our elders give our greatest teachings, right? They're our greatest teachers um, to step into that role of being with young children in a much more patient way. They got the time, right, <laughs> to, to <Yeah>. talk about <laughs> everything and And I would say that they also bring in a lot of the seven teachings and not specifically about race, but like how we treat each other, right? Like we live with those values and those values don't change depending on who you're talking to or who you're around, right? Like we, we respect everybody, right? Like even the colonizers who came and oppressed us, right? Like we still come with a level of respect for them because that's who we are. Right. This is how we treat people with these values. And that doesn't change based on race because this is our this is our ideology, right? This is Early Risers. I'm your host, Diane Halsey with Think Small in Minneapolis, Minnesota. My guest today is Brooke LaFleau. She is an emerging thought leader in the early childhood space. You said something about the seven grandfather teachings. Yep, there's seven grandfather, they call them grandfather teachings. There's a story that this little boy went and met seven different grandfathers on his journey um, and that each grandfather had a different teaching to give him. So there's, um, there's honesty, humility, respect, courage, um, love and kindness kind of gets interchangeable there. Wisdom is the turtle. And then uh, I might be missing one in there, but anyways, that was the story of the little boy who got these seven grandfather teachings and he was supposed to carry them on to his people, right? And that's how we we treat each other. That's beautiful. I love that story. What are one or two things that you want parents to understand about talking about Native people and cultures with young children? So think about it like this. If you were talking to non-Native parents, what would you want them to know? Yeah, so I think there's a few um, very basic things. First, there's the acknowledgement that Native people are still living, <laughs> We still coexist. And then the second step would be to kind of figure out 
um, whose land you're on, right? So there's 500 federally recognized tribes in the United States. And not to say like we weren't mobile people, like a lot of our tribes were kind of mobile before we were put on reservations, but you can still figure out kind of whose land you're on. So here in the cities in Minnesota, we're on what used to be like traditionally Lakota, Dakota land. Um, but then eventually Ojibwe's came here as well and migrated here um, prior to colonization. So there's also that acknowledgement, too, is that Ojibwe's also used to be here and still are here in Minnesota. There are actual websites that you can go to, correct, that you can put in your address and it will tell you what land that you are on. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So that's, like I said, this should be all information that generally anybody could get, right? Is knowing that we're still here. You can find out whose land you're on based on where you live. And then the third thing would be if, if you could find any sort of activity um, with, you know, your local cultures or I know I always say a powwow because those are really open and their, their cultural celebrations open to anybody, so if, if you could find any sort of activity or thing to do to take your child to go experience a contemporary Native American culture or to meet somebody, um, you know, there's so many different leaders out there now. You know, there's like this indigenous food movement going on. Maybe you go to a food expo or you go check out that new restaurant that's going to be opening up. I don't know. Um, but or you could even find a video, right, like of, of something that's, you know, a tribe around you or a local tribe on the internet, um, just to show them that, you know, like these are real people here and here they are, you know, um, and we still live with them and we coexist and that's to be respected. Absolutely. So you have, I'm probably going to not pronounce this correctly, <laughs> but tell us where the idea for Nini Janus one-on-ones came from. Yes, you got it very, very good. Nini Janus and Ojibwe means, loosely means my child, right? So it's a business, uh, it's a social enterprise for Indigenous children. And the, really the whole story behind it, um, so my mom ended up opening her school and then I graduated and I was like, well, you know, I might as well go help my mom. And as I was with her in the school, I was like, wow, we have like a, a, an amazing thing going here. Yes. The American Indian Montessori Child Care Center in St. Paul. Yep. Yep. My idea was like, how do we get these materials into families' homes who maybe don't have an early childhood center or who maybe just can't afford it? How can we give to children where they are and meet them where they are? So yeah, I did a pilot in 2019 and then it just, I, I left my job during the beginning of the pandemic because I was like, I can only imagine how exasperated our disparities are going to get through this pandemic. Yes. So I was like, I felt an urgency to do it at that point. So we incorporated in um, June of 2020, launched our online store in 2021, and we've kind of just been rolling ever since. Beautiful. Now you make toys and write a curriculum to go along with the toys. So caregivers understand the developmental importance and the cultural teaching, right? Yes. Our next thing is to get a mobile bus and school going. A little, a little mini classroom on a bus, then, you know, we can do home visits. We can go to powwows. We can go to birthday parties. You know, we can bring those components of um, learning into, into people's homes and into people's lives. That is groundbreaking. And like you said, really needed in the midst of this pandemic. Disparities are increasing. And a lot of the work that you're doing, the, the, the toys and materials that you're developing are very reflective of Indigenous culture. Why was it important to you that these materials reflect your culture? Yeah, it's important that children can see themselves reflected in their materials and their learning materials, right? 
And especially when we talk about Indigenous children, there's been numerous federal policies, not made by us, but made for us, right, to assimilate us and to actually remove our culture from our children. There was a whole era of boarding schools where children were forcibly removed from their families to go learn elsewhere. So to think about the gift of giving these children back aspects of their culture, it's also a radical thing to do, right? Because like we're still being assimilated, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So like there was a powwow mobile where I cut out powwow dancers and then hung them in a circle and it's a mobile for babies, right? For their eye development, basically to learn how to track movements. It's beautiful, by the way. Beautiful. Thank you. So just keeping this idea of keeping our culture alive and well in our children when they're building their brains and their personalities and their egos and who they're going to be, they're going to be having these tools that are going to have them be strong in their self-identities, right? And that's going to mitigate, you know, their experiences with bias and racism in the future because they're going to know who they are. So it's important that we um, have cultural relevancy reflected in our materials. Yeah. So do you talk to young children about the colonization and the boarding schools? And if so, how do you do that in an age-appropriate way? So generally, we talk to our children about history as it is from us and culture as it is from us. Um, The boarding school conversation is a hard one to have. We don't generally do that at the primary level. Um, We do have those conversations with parents, right, because parents don't often know how they've been affected through generational trauma. And we do a lot of that work with the parents. But when it comes to the children, we teach them aspects of our culture um, and their culture that would have been almost taught if there was no colonization. Right. Like we're going to teach you gardening because, you know, we used to sustain ourselves through food. Right. And this is what our people used to do a long time ago. We tap trees. We often have a field trip during maple season, right? Because our people, Ojibwe people used to tap trees for hundreds of years. We still do this to this day, right? So those are the aspects of our history and our culture that are still living and well that we try to share with our children. I think our goal is to really make sure that they have aspects of our culture still and that they learn those as opposed to learning, I want to say, the harder things that have been done to us. I think those are for a little bit of a more mature brain. And they're also going to be told those things in in another educational setting. So, Yeah, that's understandable. So tell me, of all of the materials and toys that you make, what is your favorite? (laughs) I have two. My first favorite is the powwow mobile, just because I'm a powwow dancer and I've had powwows in my life my whole life. It's just a huge part of my identity. Um, And it's just fun. It's just fun to dance. And the Powwow Mobile, I've noticed kids' reactions to it and they just just love it. Mm -hmm. So there's that one. And then my second favorite, it's called the Creator Stick and Ball Set. Uh, So lacrosse actually uh, is a game that came from a lot of Native tribes. And we had different varying versions that we played. And it was called Creator's Game. For Ojibwe's anyways, it was called Creator's Game. A lot of other tribes have their own names for it. Traditionally, it was a game that uh, was mostly for young boys to become men. And it was also a game that was played when maybe there was a dispute between tribes. And instead of like having a war and going to resorting to violence, they would play the game. And and now it's a, it's a community game, right? We have it for women. We have it for children. It's just a way of keeping our culture alive. So we took those what used to be adult size sticks and I asked our woodworker Ben Spears to make them toddler size. So they still have that same cultural component. 
but they also have this new component of gross motor movements, like bilateral movements, eye-hand coordination, you know, all those good things that can come with um, practicing and playing with a a stick as a toddler. That's my other favorite. So that is a fascinating story because even I didn't realize the history of lacrosse had its roots in Indigenous culture. So it's got me thinking, these toys that you're making they're bringing back culture and indigenous cultures, but also could have a lot of use with non-native families as well. Yeah, absolutely. Same thing. I would say like for that developmental purpose, it's always going to be there, right? For the the purpose of practicing and playing and developing their movements. Um, That applies to all. Um, And as far as the cultural teachings, for an indigenous child, they'd identify with it, but for a non-indigenous child or a non-indigenous family, it becomes then like a um, a teaching point of learning about indigenous cultures from us, right? Like most of the teachings that um, non-natives get is from the textbook that was not written by us. This is a way to get it directly from native people who have put their thought and energy into the work, right? And into the curriculum so that they can learn from a more, uh, what would you say, appropriate way, right? They're not, it's, it's not cultural appropriation. It's coming straight from the source. Um, so it's a good teaching point for non-Native families. And even, you know, my goal is to eventually go into other Montessori's that are non-Native to share our work with them because it would be a good way, again, as we talked a little bit earlier about um, having our next generation of children, like no Native people to see us, to understand us, um, to respect us, right? To respect that, you know, we stewarded this land for thousands of years before everyone else came here. Right. So the goal and hope behind sharing with non-natives is, is that we all kind of learn about each other and, you know, come to respect and know each other and want to be in community. So how would you want a non-native parent to talk about the medicine wheel, for example, or the seven grandfathers teachings to children? How can non-native people use those tools with their children? And is it appropriate for them to do that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, If they buy our curriculum, there's some, there's some tools in there, right? About the, the development, the cultural appropriateness, and all of that is fine to read to your child or to read to yourselves and to interpret it to give to your child in a way that um, fits the parents and family's needs. It's like, we are gifting these things to others to use. These are things we want people to share, giving natives the platforms to, to teach about ourselves and to share our stories. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Before we close, do you have any children's books that explore the Anishinaabe culture or other native cultures that you would recommend? Yeah, this is my go-to one. It's actually with the Powwow Mobile. Um, it's called Bow Wow Powwow. Jonathan Thunder is the illustrator. And then Brenda, uh, let me see here. Brenda Childs is the author. It's called Bow Wow Powwow. It's a bunch of like, quote unquote, res dogs going to a powwow, right? They're kind of acting like the natives going to the powwow and they go dance. And I think that's a, a good one. It's culturally relevant. It's age appropriate, right? And it's by us and for us again. Absolutely. Another book I like is Nini Sidawenamag. It's actually in Ojibwe and English. And they got the Ojibwe words to rhyme so that like it can click more with children. And then all the illustrations they had are all children's illustrations. Oh, nice. Who was that one by? Erica Bailey Johnson. But she does claim 
she went to a lot of different people to ask for the language. And she does give credit to say like, this is more like a community book that was made kind of like with, you know, the Nijanas one of ones is a collective of a lot of, of a different artists and educators. She kind of did the same thing. So she's the author, but she gives credit to her communities. Thank you for that. And thank you for all of the information and resources. This has been a, such an enlightening conversation and just been such a pleasure talking with you, Brooke. I've been talking with Brooke LaFleau, creator of Nini Janus One-on-Ones. And thank you for coming to Early Risers. Thank you for having me, Diane. This is Early Risers from Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio. Thank you to our executive producer, Andrea Bork, our producer, Melissa Townsend, technical director, Alex Simpson, and the whole team at Little Moments Count and NPR. And thank you to Kaviesh Kavaraj for our theme song, I Still Remember. To learn more about this conversation and to hear more episodes, go to npr.org backslash early dash risers. And to get more resources about talking with very young children about race and racism, go to littlemomentscount.org. <laughs>